Welcome to Your Torah, a 36-week journey into the world of the 63 books of the Mishnah, 18 minutes at a time. A project of Jofa UK, designed as a special invitation to engage in Torah and make it yours. This episode of Your Torah is dedicated by Nahama Goldman Barash to the memory of her mother, Riza Goldman, and her grandmothers, Sophie Ebert and Dorothy Goldman, who raised her to be a confident, articulate woman studying and teaching Torah. I'm Nechama Goldman Barish, and it is an honor to be introducing Seder Nashim, literally the Order of Women, which is the third in the six orders of Mishnah. And the reason it is such an honor is because I have spent the last 30 years studying Talmudic texts, particularly on marriage and divorce, that had largely been unavailable to women until about 40 years ago. And in fact, I am teaching one of the tractates to both this year to both the class of 18-year-old girls studying in Israel for the year and to older Israeli women in the latter group, many of whom have never studied Talmud before. In this podcast, we're going to look at the seven tractates that make up the order of women, called thus because it directly relates to interactions with women in the family and in the community. The first tractate, Yevamod, which means leveret marriage, is described in Deuteronomy 25, verse 5, where it says, When brothers dwell together and one of them dies and leaves no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall unite with her. He shall take her as his wife and perform the lover's duty. The first son that she bears shall be accounted to the dead brother that his name may not be blotted out in Israel. But if the man does not want to marry his brother's widow, his brother's widow shall appear before the elders in the gate and declare, My husband's brother refuses to establish a name in Israel for his brother. He will not perform the duty of a lover. The elders of his town shall then summon him and talk to him. If he insists, saying, I do not want to marry her, the brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull the sandal off his foot, spit in his face, and make this declaration. Thus shall be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house." and he shall go in Israel by the name of the family of the unsandaled one. What we have described here in the book of Devarim are two rituals. One is the ritual that we call yibum, or leverant marriage, where the man agrees to marry the widow, and it is not described as kiddushin, which is when a man takes a woman and says, thou shalt be mikudeshet, sanctified to me. Instead, um, the act of sexual relations essentially consummates the relationship, and the couple begins to live together. In the second half of the passage, chalitza, which literally means removal of the shoe, is described whereby the relationship between the woman and her brother-in-law is severed, and she is free to marry who she pleases. The Mishnah, with its 16 chapters, seeks to limit the ritual, first by stating that daughters also exempt women from evil, and second, by limiting it to brothers only from the father. At some point in history, Yibum was eliminated, leaving only the ritual of Chalitza, which is still practiced until today. Throughout the 16 chapters, many different scenarios involving multiple wives and many brothers are presented. Students studying the tractate often use little dolls to keep track of all the possibilities. Notable is a discussion on the mitzvah known as pru-urvu, or procreation. And the Mishnah questions, what is the minimum by which the mitzvah is fulfilled? According to Beit Shammai, two boys fulfills a man's requirement or obligation to procreate. According to Beit Hillel, a boy and a girl. 
And the Mishnah then continues that if a man lives with a woman for more than 10 years and she has not borne him children, he cannot renege on his obligation to procreate and, in fact, either has to take another wife or divorce this one. And the Talmud goes into many interesting discussions regarding the mitzvah of procreation and why men are obligated and women are not, and for that, you'll have to delve into the tractate. Moving on to the tractate of Ketubot. There is no verse to quote here for the Ketubah. The ancient Jewish document, which dates back to the Second Temple, has no obvious biblical origin. Its purpose is to set forth essentially an insurance policy for women in the case of divorce or death of the husband, in that the woman is entitled to 200 zoos if she was married as a virgin, or 100 zoos if she was either widowed or divorced. Essentially what this means is that she is provided with one to two years of moderate support in order to reestablish herself and probably find herself another husband, uh, but it gives her some breathing space in the wake of a failed or dissolved marriage. Now, how did this work? How did the Ketubah work? Initially, it seems men were obligated to have the money up front, but years passed and the men grew old until they saved enough money, so that was not a good solution. Another problem arose that men who had the cash could too easily divorce their wives by throwing the money on the table and saying, take your ketubah and go. When it was suggested that women marry younger men who did not have the cash, the women refused for fear they would be left penniless in the case of widowhood or divorce. In the end, a decision was made to allow men to create a lien on their property so that the land could be mortgaged for the ketubah. The assumption was that all men owned some land, and this protected the women, but it also allowed for earlier marriages because they didn't have to have cash up front. Misachak Tupot is a fascinating 13-chapter tractate that examines family relationships, the relationship between parents and children, husbands and wives. While not presenting an egalitarian structure, the tractate prevents a very balanced halachic system in which men and women have obligations and duties towards one another. Some interesting surprises. Based on a verse in Exodus 21.10, we're told about the Hebrew handmaiden who's given by her father to a master. The master, if he does not free her, must treat her as wife and not withhold from her food, clothing, or sexual relations. What's astonishing here is that it's essentially the woman's right and the man's duty to provide sexual relations, unlike Anglo-Saxon law, which until recently did not consider marital rape to be rape because it was the wife's duty and the man's right. Another surprise that appears in the tractate is that women nursed their children and it was considered a duty towards their husbands because the husband is responsible to feed the child until he's six years old. And so even this care of the children slips in under the umbrella of the husband-wife relationship. Even the subject of virginity, which takes up the first three and a half chapters of the tractate, and is valued at 200 zoos in the ketubah because of its value in society, surprises us because the Mishnah brings case after case where non-virgins before marriage explain their situation to the court, rape, seduction, an unfortunate accident with a tree, and the women are both listened to and believed. Even when it comes to a he said, she said situation the morning after the wedding. One more final example I want to bring that strikes me as unusual in this tractate appears in chapter 7. 
The Mishnah brings a series of examples in which men take vows preventing their wives from eating fruit or from putting on jewelry or for going to visit their father's house, going to a house of mourning to pay shiva calls, what seems to be a series of scenarios in which men are essentially abusing their wives emotionally. And in all of those cases, the Mishnah demands that he divorce her and give her her ketubah. And just to provide balance towards the end of the chapter, it brings a series of examples in which women misuse their position in the household. For instance, feeding their husbands untithed food or bread that has not had the challah offering been separated from it or having sexual relations when they're menstrually impure. In other words, in all of those scenarios, women are doing things behind their husband's back without their husbands being able to ascertain knowledge of the action. And there too, the Mishnah demands that the husband divorce his wife and in this case, not give her a ketubah as penalty. It is a central tractate and it's referred to as the mini Talmud because it provides so many important scenarios in the halachic process of the family structure. The next tractate in the order, Nidarim, or vows, is 11 chapters long and revolves around vows taken by men and women for different reasons, to show piety or anger or to prove truthfulness. Its placement in this order is a little surprising, and it seems to be because of the verses in the book of Numbers, Midbar 30, in which fathers and husbands have the ability to nullify the vows of wives and young daughters if the vows directly affect them. This topic was already examined in several of the chapters of Ketubot and serves as a bridge to this tractate. The next tractate, Nazir, which is nine chapters long, looks at a particular type of vow, the vow of the Nazareth, which is described in chapter six of the book of Bamidbar, Numbers, prohibits the Nazir to come into contact with the dead and to drink or eat all grape-based products similar in many ways to the restrictions placed on a Kohen who is on active duty, a priest who serves in the temple, with one major exception. Priests or Kohanim must have neat and tidy hair while serving, while a Nazir is commanded to desist from attending to his hair so that it becomes overgrown and unkempt. Upon finishing his or her period of Nazirut, He or she must shave the hair and offer it to the temple along with sacrifices. The tractate examines in detail the different pieces of the Nazarite ritual, which can equally apply to men and women. Although a man can prevent his wife from becoming a Nazir by claiming he does not want a disfigured wife, referring to the point at which she shaves her hair. The Tractate of Sota, which comes next, examines the ritual mentioned in Chapter 5 of Bamidbar, in which a woman is fairly or unfairly accused of adultery by her husband, who cannot substantiate his claim with witnesses. The Torah mandates that he bring her before the high priest, who forces her to drink a concoction of dirt, water, and the ink of God's erased name. If she is guilty, her belly will swell and her thigh will sag. If she is innocent, she will bear seed. The Mishnah diverges from the biblical text in that it mandates that there be two witnesses to the husband's warning that his wife stay away from a particular man and avoid seclusion, and one or two witnesses to the seclusion. In other words, he cannot randomly accuse her with no basis. In this tractate, 
Chapter 3, Mishnah 4, we find the famous Mishnah, which brings a disagreement about educating women. Ben Azai states that a man must educate his daughter so she knows that merit will suspend punishment in case she is accused of being a sota. Rabbi Eliezer says, Kol hamelamed bito Torah ki ilu flut. Anyone who teaches his daughter Torah, it's as if he teaches her lewdness. In other words, what we have here is a disagreement about the power of education. According to Ben Azai, education empowers her, and the more she knows, the less likely she is to stumble. Rabbi Eliezer seems to suggest the opposite. Education will empower her, but onto a path of promiscuity, and she will learn to avoid consequence. Rabbi Eliezer remains the dominant voice for 2,000 years when it comes to women and Jewish education. Basically, until about 100 years ago, when mandatory Jewish education becomes unavoidable and sparks a revolution that leads to my teaching this podcast. The next tractate is Gitin, which is composed of nine chapters, like Sota and Nazir before it. The description of divorce is found in Deuteronomy Devarim 24, verses 1 and 2. It is written in the Torah that if a man takes a wife and possesses her, she fails to please him because he finds something obnoxious about her, and he writes her a bill of divorcement, hands it to her, and sends her away from his house. She leaves his household and becomes the wife of another man. Then this latter man rejects her, writes her a bill of divorcement, hands it to her, and sends her away from his house, etc. This section in the Torah is the basis for the Jewish divorce system existing even until today, in which a man has to willingly give his wife a get, a Jewish divorce document, in order to effect the divorce. The tractate Gittin deals with the details of the divorce ritual and how it is carried out, and it's quite technical, examining every aspect of the divorce, how the get is written, what ink is used, what paper is used, how it is uh, delivered to the woman, what position the document is placed into her hands, and so on and so forth. There is a wonderful section in the fourth chapter in which the concept of tikkun olam, literally improving the world, is presented, and the Talmud develops the idea further. The last tractate of the order is Kiddushin. It is last simply because it is the shortest. It only has four chapters. It opens up with the famous Mishnah, Ha'ishan niknet b'shalosh drachim, v'konat etzma b'shtei drachim, niknet b'kesef b'shtar u'beviyah. Literally, it means a wife is acquired through the act we call Kiddushin in three ways. She acquires herself in two ways. She is acquired through the transfer of money, the transfer of a document, or sexual relations, all of which have to be done in the name of Kiddushin, in the name of marriage. And then the Mishnah continues, she acquires herself either through divorce, if she's granted a divorce, or if her husband dies, in which case she is no longer considered married. The Mishnah continues to examine each of the three methods in which Kiddushin can be affected, and the Talmud goes into greater detail as it examines all of the methods. The first chapter, in addition, brings us the categories of obligation and exemption that affect women with regard to mitzvot. So we hear for the first time, in a clear, precise manner, the four categories of mitzvot. The Mishnah divides mitzvot into positive and negative mitzvot, and in addition, categories of time-bound and non-time-bound, which of course requires further explanation, which the Talmud brings. The Mishnah concludes that women are obligated in non-time-bound mitzvot, both positive and negative, just like men, 
but essentially it exempts them from one category. All positive time-bound mitzvot, men are obligated and women are exempt. So while there are four categories of mitzvot and women are obligated in three of the categories, they are exempt from the fourth category, which includes, among other things, the mitzvot of shofar, lulav, sukkah, tzitzit, tefillin, and the saying of shema. It is important to note that while women were exempt, they were not prohibited, which suggests that women could voluntarily do any of these mitzvot, and that becomes an ongoing conversation over 2,000 years, which mitzvot women can or should do, as opposed to refraining from. The Talmudic discussion acknowledges that women are actually obligated in some time-bound mitzvot, like saying Kiddush on Shabbat or eating matzah on Passover. And they're exempt from some non-time-bound mitzvot, like learning Torah, which has no time framework, and procreating. And it acknowledges, finally, that when a principle has almost as many exceptions to the rule as those that remain within the rule, it largely serves as a placeholder for the discussion. The tractate ends with the topic of lineage and how it affects the institution of marriage within the Jewish people, it has certain repercussions, even until today. With this, we conclude a brief look at Seder Nashim, the order of women, full of many topics that are relevant, like marriage and divorce, lineage, procreation, parent-child relations, death, inheritance, and even yibum, leveret marriage, which is still relevant. Women who lose their husbands and have no children must undergo chalitza, a ceremony carried out in rabbinic courts with fidelity to the biblical Mishnaic and Talmudic texts. Thank you for joining me in this journey, and I hope you agree with me that contrary to Rabbi Eliezer's dire predictions in Sota, learning Torah does not lead to lewdness, tiflut, but brings us closer to our history, our tradition, and our religious identity. This episode of Your Torah is brought to you by Jofa UK in collaboration with women from around the world who all share a passion for Torah study. If you are enjoying your Torah, consider sponsoring an episode. Find out more by visiting ukjova.org. Join the conversation on social media using the hashtag YourTorah.